Clemson Dubcast. Recording this on Friday, August 19th. Clemson's football team has a three-day weekend after, wow, 16, 17 straight days, I believe, of August camp and other assorted preparations for the season. We have learned quite a lot so far, uh, most notably the offensive line, uh, how that's probably going to be configured on the right side. Blake Miller has been a revelation. DJ Uwe Unglele, it's been a heck of an offseason for him. Nobody knows what's going to happen when the lights turn on, but uh, really positive signs there so far. And, of course, at TigerIllustrated.com, wall-to-wall coverage. I think if, if you're a subscriber, you've learned a lot over the last few weeks from us that you can't really get anywhere else. It's been a lot of fun uh, joining Paul Strilo, digging way beneath the surface uh, to give our readers a really good sense of what's going on. So you, if you're not subscribing yet, now is the time. My good friends Blake Smith and Brooke Archenhold have been part of the podcast since the beginning, way back in August of 2018. They have an accomplished team of personal injury attorneys at Parm Smith and Archenhold based in Greenville. They are Clemson people, and their skillful attorneys have decades of experience in complicated litigation matters, taking a special interest in medical malpractice, nursing home abuse, and neglect car accident cases that have left the individuals involved in serious trouble. For a free consultation at Parm Smith and Archenhold, call 864-990-4581 or online at parhamlaw.com. That's P-A-R-H-A-M law.com. Solero Communications, formerly known as Tandem Payment, is a full-service integrated electronic payments provider powered by leading-edge technology. Solero provides a wide array of merchant solutions, simplified payments. They make onboarding, taking payments, maintaining risk management and compliance, and getting support quick and easy. At Solero, they're all about helping you achieve sustainable growth as a business. Taking payments isn't the only thing your business needs. With Solero's solutions, you can manage inventory, sell products and services via social media, schedule staff, track sales, get reports, and much, much more. Find out more about Solero at solerocommerce.com. That's C-E-L-E-R-O commerce.com. Want to share a quick word about Founders Federal Credit Union? If you've been to a sporting event in Clemson, you've probably heard about Founders already. They are the official credit union partner of the Clemson Tigers. In addition to that, all Clemson faculty, staff, and students are eligible for membership as well as IPTA members. Matt Gross is a proud Clemson alum and the vice president for the Clemson market for Founders Federal Credit Union. Matt's office is located beside the Walmart neighborhood market on Old Greenville Highway in Clemson. For more information, go to foundersfcu.com. Okay, two conversations today. The first with Gary Stoken, president and CEO of the Peach Bowl. Wow, what a story he has dating back a long way. And then our second conversation, Kelly Quinlan. Going to give some insight as to whether the ship is truly sinking under Jeff Collins in Atlanta. Good stuff both ways. Here we go. Enjoy. Joined by Gary Stoken, Peach Bowl president and CEO, also a gentleman in all my dealings with him. How are you doing, Gary? I'm doing great, Larry. Thanks so much for having us. It's uh, just a wonderful time of the year with college football getting ready to kick off. I guess I need to offer congrats because this week's news that Atlanta is going to be the first city to host a national championship game twice. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's really great news. I mean, between the Atlanta Sports Council, the uh, Atlanta Convention Visitors Bureau, the the Georgia World Congress Center, Mercedes-Benz Stadium, us, um, you know, just uh, a great team in Atlanta to uh, – 
to put on college football events, and that's why a lot of the media calls Atlanta the capital of college football. Between the kickoff games, uh, the SEC championship, uh, the semifinal games, the national fi- finals, we've had a lot of great uh, – uh, and I should mention Mercedes-Benz Stadium, too, obviously. Uh, Arthur Blank and Tim Zalowski, what they do with uh, Mercedes-Benz Stadium to create such a wonderful fan experience, it uh, goes a long way to helping host big events like this, especially in college football. I'm sure to explain the inner workings of how you're able to land the championship game would take about six hours uh, neither of us have that much time. Can you give a little bit of insight, though, into what that process is like, just sort of in, in layman's terms? Well, the Atlanta Sports Council, uh, which I used to be president of, um, you know, really is the leader of all the bids for major events in the city. And, um, you know, what we talked about putting a box team together is the facility. Uh, the Atlanta Convention Visitors Bureau, the site, in this case, Mercedes-Benz Stadium, and then the uh, the entities that have relationships with the host, the bid host. So in our case, CFP is us. Um, so all of us get together, and um, it's a great teamwork, great team effort to uh, obviously make the bid, but uh, uh, win the bid is one thing, to put the actual event on. And then have people want to come back is another. And so uh, that's the proof in the pudding. And that takes a lot of great volunteers, a lot of great corporate support, a lot of the hospitality industry and uh, the airport. We're just very, very blessed in Atlanta to have um, the infrastructure, whether it's 15,000 hotel rooms downtown and walking distance, uh, whether it's the most effective and efficient airport in the world. We've got a lot of hourly flights. Um, to the major markets so people can get here easy. Um, having three interstates that intersect in the middle of downtown. What I think is the best stadium in the country right now, Mercedes-Benz Stadium from a fan experience perspective. Um, and then the people. At the end of the day, the volunteerism, uh, the hospitality, people really enjoy hosting people. And we're very, very blessed with uh, a lot of head, Fortune 500 headquarter companies here that really get it and uh, really become a part of the team to uh, to fund these things and make it all happen. And then you got the, the mayor and the governor that are in sync. Uh, they help pass a hotel motel tax that funds a lot of the uh, fees that it takes to put on these type of events. So we're very, very blessed we get it, you know, in our city. Uh, four of the top six conventions on an annual basis are college football games, our two Chick-fil-A kickoff games this year, the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl at the end of the year, and the SEC championship. Um, so, you know, when you're talking about those events, you know, it's like 30 to $60 million in economic impact, which uh, drives a lot of tax money back into the city and state coffers. And those being on an annual basis in Atlanta, which is the fourth largest convention town in the United States, really goes to show how big and how important college football is to our economy here in Atlanta. I want to get back to the present day stuff, but I was I was reading a, a recent column by Lauren Smith 
uh, the famous uh, what do you got, Lauren, of, of, of University of Georgia lore. Um, something I did not know about you, uh, I, I, I've been ignorant of, but at the age of 24, you were <laughs> you were working for Converse and negotiating contracts with Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, and Michael Jordan. I think most uh, most people uh, listening to this are, are familiar with the Last Dance documentary and and, and and those negotiations mainly relating to Jordan, but it's just fascinating. Can I get you to share some of that history and, and, and maybe take us back a little bit because that's really interesting stuff. Yeah, Lauren is a good friend, and he had his, his ages off a little bit. Michael, when I was negotiating uh, the deal with Michael, um, you know, he was 23, 24. I was probably about 28 or 29. But, um, yeah, Michael had, and it's in the book Shoe Dogs, which is Phil Knight's book that he wrote. Um, after Michael and his dad and David Falk, his agent, came out of the meeting with Nike, both David uh, Falk and Michael's dad said, we're signing with Nike. And Michael's quoted in the book saying, no, I want to sign with Adidas. And Michael and I met on Franklin Street in Chapel Hill across from Four Corners on the stone wall there. And, you know, he said, Mr. Stokely, call me Mr. Stokely. <laughs> I love you. I love you. You've been great to me and my family. I love your product. I really like to sign with Adidas if you can get close on the car the annuity, the poster program, the uh, shoe deal, and the clothing, um, uh, and the car, I'll, I'll sign with Adidas. And so I wrote up a three-page marketing campaign and sent it to Herzegonara, West Germany, where the wall was still up, and that's where Adidas was headquartered. And unfortunately, at the time, Adidas had just gone through a transition when uh, Adi Dossler's son, Horst Dossler, had just died of eye cancer at 51 years old. And he was, he had taken over the company after Adi had died. And so the company was in kind of flux with leadership. And, um, you know, they, they just, they didn't want to make the commitments in the United States market and told me they don't have that kind of money to put in the U.S. market. And so in the book, Shoe Dogs, Phil Knight's book, he references that they were in the red. They they couldn't find a uh, a bank to fund their growth and their support and support them, and so they were in the red. And they signed Michael Jordan, and uh, Michael in his first year at Chicago Bulls sold 126 million dollars of Air Jordan product, put Nike in the black, and now Michael Jordan's brand is uh, is worth three billion dollars for Nike. So. Um, there's two stories there. One is if we sign them, you know, we probably would have, you know, maybe not sold 126 million because we owned our factories and our margins weren't as good as Nike's at the time. And they were a very good marketing campaign. Uh, we were more manufacturing and product driven. Uh, but secondly, we might've put Nike out of business. So, uh, it's my biggest regret in sports in 44 years is that we didn't get the deal done with, Michael Jordan, but I saw him, you know, I think it was the next year. Um, I take my family on vacation after the bowl game and, uh, we were at the Atlantis hotel walking through the casino to go to dinner in the restaurant. And over on the left-hand side, they have a bunch of shops and there was a cigar shop there. 
And my daughters were about 10 and seven. Then my 10 year old daughter looked over and said, there's Michael Jordan. And I looked and I said, yeah, there, let's walk over and see him and say hello. And so we walked over and he was with Charles Barkley, Charles Oakley and Ahmad Rashad because Michael was putting on his golf tournament down in, in the Bahamas at the time. And Michael saw me and called me over and said, gee, come here. So we walked over and I introduced my daughters and my wife to him. And he told them, he said, this is the hardest working man in sports. You <laughs> kids ought to know that. And my daughters never forget that. And then he told, put me in a headlock, <laughs> told the story that I just told you. And he said, yeah, I wanted to sign with Adidas, but Gary didn't think I could play. And so he didn't sign me. So stuck a dagger right in my heart. So, and then in, in, in the case of Magic uh, or Magic and Larry, um, I went to work for uh, Converse after Adidas in 1987, 88. And um, Michael um, had already had his deal done. Well, my, my uh, boss, Al Harden, who had signed Magic and Larry, he um, he got hurt in a car accident, never made it back to work. He retired on disability a month into the job that I had taken from uh, leaving Adidas and going to Converse. And so um, Magic, uh, you know, when they came to play, I guess it was October of that year. I took the job, I think, in June. In October of that year, Al had gone out with his accident, so I was double duty doing Al's job and my job, running national basketball for Converse, and Al was the vice president of promotions. And I'd already already asked Al how he got Magic and Larry to sign in the same year for Converse, and um, Magic came to Boston to play the Celtics and said, hey, I'm having problems with my Achilles tendon. So we sent him down to the shoe cobbler, every, every shoe company has a shoe guy that molds the, the athlete's foot and builds him a special shoe. So we built them for magic. He goes on, they beat the Celtics. I think they flew to Detroit. I think they beat the Pistons and they flew home to LA. And the next week I asked, I called magic and said, how are the shoes? And he said, they're still hurting. So I said, I knew something was up. So I flew to LA, met with uh, Lon Rosen who was Magic's agent and Magic in Lon's Beverly Hills house. And I said, Magic, what's up? And he said, well, you know, I want you to rip up my contract and give me a, a Michael Jordan type contract. And I said, well, I can't do that. Um, I said, how else can I help? And he said, well, the royalties for the kid's shoe, um, Converse is not giving me any royalties on those. They changed the name of the shoe from the weapon to the revolver on the kid's shoe. And the weapon was the shoe that Larry and Magic were promoting for Converse. And they were getting royalties for that. So I told Magic, I said, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you any back royalties on the kid's shoe, the revolver, and I'll give you any future royalties. Um, so um, uh, I went back and changed the contract so i added an addendum to their contract i didn't negotiate their original contract i just negotiated an addendum to it uh for he and i had to do the same for larry because they were both promoting the weapon shoes so you know that's my 
my uh, magic story. That's my bird story. And then that's my Jordan story. And then I, ironically enough, I, I started a sports marketing company, sold it to a company from London that wanted to get in the U S uh, in Atlanta for the 96 Olympic games here in Atlanta and went back to work for Adidas when Sonny Vaccaro, Rob Strausser, and Peter Moore, who had done the Air Jordan shoe at Nike, left Nike to run Adidas America. And Sonny Vaccaro to John Louis Dreyfus, who owned Adidas at the time, that they had to hire me to run basketball. So I took the job, went back to Adidas, and Sonny had just signed Kobe Bryant. And so I was uh, in charge of putting together Kobe's first shoe, his first global marketing campaign, his first TV spot. And uh, so, yeah, having the opportunity to work with Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, and then having the opportunity to sign Mike Krzyzewski to Adidas contract. And I signed Herschel Walker to a Adidas contract. So I've signed the, the best college football player ever, Herschel. I signed the best college basketball ever, Mike Krzyzewski, and had the best basketball player ever in Michael Jordan ready to sign and unfortunately didn't sign him. But uh, so I had a great run in the, in the shoe industry. It sounds like the Adidas thing with Jordan was out of your control, but is there, as you said, you're kicking your, you've been kicking yourself ever since. Is there anything different you could have done? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I've thought about it. You know, at 20, I think I was 29 years old at the time. You know, I didn't have the the experience, the knowledge in business um, to really push the envelope. Um, you know, I wasn't old enough. I wasn't mature enough um, in business to really know that I should not have given up that easy and just allow them to tell us they don't have that kind of money. I should have, but I, politically, I, you know, I wasn't as astute as I am now to know that, Hey, you know, I should have gone in different directions to get people on my side, to push the envelope a little bit harder. Uh, cause I knew Michael was going to be tremendous and, um, you know, uh, could I have got something done if, you know, if I was a little bit older, mature and pushed the envelope a little bit, I might've been able to get something done, but you know, that's, that's life. You grew up in Pittsburgh, went to NC state. It, and this is a similarity with Clemson's football coach, Debo Sweeney walked on and correct me if I'm wrong, if, if any of this is inaccurate, walked on to the basketball team, then got a scholarship, got a degree in business management. Is all that accurate? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, again, sometimes, uh, uh, being naive and, and even, you know, not smart for lack of a better term is a good thing. Um, uh, I think back and, and transferring and, you know, walking on to, to, uh, NC state, they had just won the national championship in 74 and so I walk on in 75 and that was my redshirt year. So I practiced that year with Monty and David, Monty town, David Thompson. And, but how many people look to go to a school and walk on as the school just won a national championship. And, uh, <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, not knowing, uh, 
as much as, you know, you should know maybe at 18 years old. Uh, but it wound up being the best thing I ever did in my life. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure many people would, you know, look to walk on the after the national championship team and, and returning all the players that they returned. But Norm Sloan was a, a great mentor, a great coach, a great friend in, in life. And uh, I wound up coaching for him after I uh, played at NC State and uh, coached there three years. We had recruited Sidney Lowe, Derek Wittenberg, and Thur Bailey uh, all as freshmen and coached them as freshmen. And then Norm left to take the uh, Florida job, wanted me to go down to Florida with he and Monty Tao. Uh, Monty was the other assistant. And uh, Jimmy Valvano came into NC State. And Jimmy wanted me to stay at State. And I had decided at the time, I had seen some of the unseen senior side was recruiting with money change hands. And even back then, that's what, 40-some years ago, um, you know, the cheating was rampant in basketball like it is now. And um, decided to get out of coaching. And as Norm told me, he said, look, you got a great work ethic. You're smart. You know, get into business and you'll be you'll you'll succeed and do well. So I wound up uh, getting a job with Adidas and moving to Atlanta and opening up opening up the Southeast Regional Office for Adidas and been in Atlanta ever since. So I've been very, very blessed. 2008 is. uh prominent in the memory of Clemson fans I guess for not good very good reasons because that was the first that was the inaugural Chick-fil-A kickoff game Clemson comes in top 10 uh Alabama is is the second year under Nick Saban and people at the time are like I don't know if he's going to work out because they had just lost to I guess Louisiana Lafayette the previous year they were seven and six and then everything turned uh for Alabama at least that night when they just curb stomped Clemson, um, and then they were just on their way uh, to, to 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 dynasty status. What stands out to me about about that game, the the the, the advent of it, is is the visionary nature uh, that came with it because these games are so much a part of the framework now in these major cross sectional big time games that uh, have been a big part of the playoff uh, era and of, we have to think are going to be a part of whatever we end up with moving forward. Am I right? Yeah, we're, we're uh, it's interesting. I've got uh, mixed emotions on, on all of that. Uh, you know, we had started um, in 1998 and I told my board, my job is to get us in the BCS and uh, unfortunately, we didn't get into the BCS. Uh, they they went uh, in 2006 to a double host model, uh, but they had put out a bid to bring in another bowl game, and we made a very strong bid. But uh, they continued with the Rose Sugar Orange and Fiesta hosting their game, and then uh, hosting two weeks later the national championship. So we lost that that bid. But the next year, the NCAA legislated a 12th game to college football schedules. And so I told my board, I said, you know, if they're not going to let us in the BCS on the backside of the season, we're going to start a BCS bowl type atmosphere game on the front side of the season with this legislation of this 12th game. And so um, out of adversity came 
what I think has been the biggest change in college football until most recently, uh, because we changed the face of college football on the front side of the season with, you know, now you got Notre Dame, Ohio state playing the first week this year. You got Texas, Alabama playing the second week. Well, previous to 2008, before we started the Chick-fil-A kickoff games, people would play directional schools or FCS schools in their first three games and then get into their conference schedule. And the ratings were terrible and attendance wasn't very good. And, um, you know, with our advent of Clemson, Alabama in 2008 um, and the run we've been on ever since, uh, we've changed college football. Um, You know, mixed emotions with Tommy Bowden, who's a good friend who I really like was the coach of Clemson. Terry Don Phillips, who was a good friend, decided to play in the game uh, when I called him. And uh, as you said, with, with Siller, Spiller, you know, Clemson was like, I think, number nine in the country. Mm-hmm. And um, I had developed a friendship with Nick Saban when he was at LSU, giving them a break to play in our Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl in 2000 against Georgia Tech, which they wound up winning. They, they uh, wound up recruiting all the kids that were going to play in their 2003 national championship team. Had seen that game in 2000, and Nick told me they signed every one of the kids. So um, uh, when I called him, he was in his second season. As you mentioned, he was 7-6 his first year. And he said, Gary, I'll come over and play. They were like on borderline 24th or 25th in the country at that time. And he said, you know, if I can come into Georgia um, and recruit Georgia and finish second to the University of Georgia in, in Georgia and win Alabama recruiting, we'll play for national championships. Well, wow. He came in, they beat Clemson 34-10. Sports Illustrated cover that week was Alabama's back. And Nick would tell you that was the start of their run because the next year, I had them back in the Chick-fil-A kickoff game. They played number seven, Virginia Tech. They And Alabama was number five. They won the game. They won the national championship. And he had 19 kids from Georgia on his roster. Wow. Um, and as I mentioned on the Clemson side, Terry Don Phillips was a great friend and, um, you know, had the foresight. He was really smart in football and wanted to play in the game. And um, Tommy, again, losing the game hurt Tommy, but on the other side, I feel good that it presented an opportunity for Dabo Sweeney, who's a good friend. Six weeks into the season, they, they named Dabo the coach, so interesting stories on every side of that that game, for sure. As, as you noted, Dabo was a receivers coach on the field that game, then became the head coach. You, you, you just said that he's become a good friend. What is sort of your perspective on having watched him grow into a sort of a totally unproven head coach, this, this experiment that was undertaken by Terry Don, grow it into a, oh, he's got a really good team now with Sammy Watkins and such, and then growing from that into, oh my gosh, this is a powerhouse that can go toe-to-toe with anybody and even beat the mighty Nick Saban. What, can you maybe give a window into your relationship with him and what you've learned about him uh, over the years, not necessarily just as a coach, but as a, as a man and a person? Well, there's two sides of the story. One is, I would tell you personally that I believe Dabo is successful because, number one, 
he he's hungry. You know, being a walk-on and and being at a prestigious place like Alabama, he was taught by Gene Stallings, who was taught by Bear Bryant. So uh, that's a great background to have. Number one, number two, Dabo personally is uh, is is passionate. Um, and you have to be passionate to be successful. And he's very passionate and he's a people person. Um, and he's got a great perspective on life. Um, and so all of that translates and, and being very positive, all that translates down to his recruiting, his staff, um, the administration around him. You know, people want to root for Dabo because he does things the right way. He de- he's a positive, uh, and, you know, and anything he does, the atmosphere around him is always positive. Um, and so, you know, I I think the world of Dabo and Kathleen and his, his boys, you know, it's just a great family that, that um, you know, they have. Um, and, and they've taken that family culture and really spread it throughout not only Clemson football, but I think through the whole athletic program there. Uh, because when you're a leader, you know, people look to you, whether it's, you know, the different coaches, the athletic department. And as we all know now, football is so uh, prevalent and important to an institution. Um, so I think Dabo's positiveness and his work ethic is doing things the right way. Um, and his passion have translated and, and transferred all the way down through the program there at Clemson. Um and then the, the other thing I would add is, you know, like I talked about Nick Saban, you know, starting in that uh, 2008 game and now using that to be the platform to make his run and the success they've had. I would say the th- same thing about Dabo Sweeney. In 2012, I believe it was, they came into the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl playing top 10 LSU. And uh, I'll never forget fourth and 16 with Boyd to, to Hopkins you know, that, uh, that pass play uh, sets them up for the field goal and they win the game with no time left on the clock, 13 to 12. And that was the first time that Clemsoning started to uh, remove itself from the nomenclature of, of people talking about Clemson football uh, because the next year they came in and, and beat Georgia and uh, beating two highly ranked SEC teams back-to-back. And Dabo would tell you, that LSU game was the start of Clemson's run that they've been on and the success they've had as well. So we've had two um, really important uh, parts of uh, Alabama and Clemson's success that they've been on. And ironically enough, you know, Kirby Smart, his first game was – the Chick-fil-A kickoff game against North Carolina in 2016 that they won. And uh, they've been on a run ever since as well. So, yeah, we've been a big part of college football and how it's changed, particularly, you know, the Alabama, Clemson, and Georgia programs. This game on Labor Day, Labor Day night, of course, between Clemson and, and Georgia Tech is sold out, but there's a bit of an asterisk there in that it's uh, capped at 43,000. Is that right? Yeah, we'll have 45,000 in the stadium, um, which is what Georgia Tech wanted. Uh, they had they did that against um, North Carolina the year before in the uh, in Mercedes-Benz Stadium. And because it's an ACC game, um, 
you know, by ACC, uh, visiting team uh, only gets 4,000 tickets. And so that's what we gave to Clemson. Now there's obviously tickets on the secondary market, and I'm sure there'll be a lot more Clemson people in there. Um, but Georgia Tech liked the atmosphere for the North Carolina game with 45,000. I think they seat 53,000 at Bobby Dodd. So um, uh, they like that kind of atmosphere, and so that's what we went with. So, yeah, it'll be sold out and be a great atmosphere in Mercedes-Benz Stadium on Monday night to kick off the ACC season in the Chick-fil-A kickoff game. So it's not a uh, an issue of demand as much as just Georgia Tech's preferences as the host team? Yeah, exactly. Um, that was their preference, and obviously we're, we're blessed to work with them and the ACC uh, who has the exclusive uh, ESPN time slot in prime time uh, in their TV contract. So uh, ACC was good enough to, you know, let us have the Clemson-Georgia Tech game, and Georgia Tech was good enough to have their home game move over to Mercedes-Benz Stadium to be a part of the Chick-fil-A kickoff game. Last question. Uh, <laughs> it's a, it, 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 this one packs a lot. What... What is your take on the present state of college football, and, and where do you think things are headed with so much change in the air, uh, realignment, super conferences, NIL, portal, all the above? What, what's your feeling um, sort of on the direction and the trajectory of things? Like if I were to ask you what are things going to look like in five years, what would your your best guess be? Yeah, it's a little frustrating having been in college sports all my life um, in one way or another. Um, you know, whenever you have a lack of leadership uh, that's without any vision, I don't care what entity you're in, you're going to have problems. And the NCAA has had a lack of leadership for quite some time now. Um, and God bless the presidents. I don't want to denigrate anybody, but they just don't have the time or the interest um, to really uh, run college sports. And at the end of the day, the NCAA is comprised of, of not necessarily an office as much as it is the presidents of the universities who run the NCAA. And um, they just have too big a job on campus to know about sports and worry about sports and have to get involved in all the things you have to do to run sports. And so my belief is, you know, we need to break away from the NCAA college football. Um, college football needs a commissioner. Commissioner needs a board. It's comprised of commissioners of the leagues and, and ADs who have a particular interest in that sport and some knowledge. Uh, I think the same thing needs to take place in men's basketball and women's basketball, uh, same thing in men's baseball. They need a commissioner. And I think Olympic sports needs a commissioner. And then all of those commissioners in those respective sports, basketball, football, baseball, and Olympic sports have a board that together with that board, they create the vision of that sport, where it's going. They create the uh, championships. They create the enforcement rules. And they create the schedule and, and what the playoff looks like in the case of college football. Um, 
So they're focused on football, and, and that's what we're talking about, and creating a vision of where the sport needs to go into the future and deal with all the issues you need to deal with in football. You know, you can't, you know, be like, you know, we have for pro sports, we have everybody under the same roof. And, um, you know, some entity is trying to manage NBA and NFL and Major League Baseball and Major League Soccer and PGA. You can't do it. And the same thing in football. I mean, in, in college sports, you can't do it. So each sport needs its own separate commissioner, its own board to create a vision and create a strategy and put all the things in place to deal with all the issues you've got to deal with. Um, so that's what I believe should take place. I think there was an article yesterday that the presidents uh, have, you know, talked about this a little bit. Um, so I think it'll happen within the next five years. Um, and it really it should have taken place before this. And we probably wouldn't be in the problems that we have right now. Uh, I worry about NIL and, and all the rules and guidelines that don't exist for that. I worry about the transfer portal. Um, and, and more than I worry about the collectives. More than all that, I worry about the student athlete who, you know, like me, is I probably don't get the opportunity to get a college education if I don't get a scholarship. Um and there's 98% of the people that are like me that are student-athletes. They're not going to play pro, but we have to decide, are we in the business of being in college football NFL light or college sports being pro sports light? Or are we in the business of college athletics of educating kids and getting them degrees, um, which I think it should be? And then the collectives, at the end of the day, shouldn't be paying kids to come to a school at 17, 18, 19 years old. The collectives should be there, and the donors and alumni of the corporations, they should be there to place all those student-athletes that don't go pro in jobs mm. and get them, get them situated in their career because everybody has to pick up a lunch pail at some point and go to work. And that's what I think college athletics should be about helping kids get an opportunity to get an education to get a degree to play athletics then all the th good things that go along with athletics and teamwork etc but then after they graduate get them a job and get them placed so um not not high on the transfer portal that they have right now it needs cleaned up not high on nil and across the, the states all having different rules and regulations uh, not high on the collectives. Um, I think separately, they're all good ideas, but they all need, again, that vision and strategy by people focused on how it's going to impact the student athlete and the sport. And I think if you did that and cleaned up federally across every state, the same NIL roles. I think if you, you focus in on the transfer portal, making sure that kids are going to get their degrees even if they transfer two times uh, and then the collectives being there at the end, after a kid gets his degree in volleyball or baseball or swimming or football, whatever it is getting a, a job for him. So that's, that's the vision I have for college sports and particularly college football. And 
I think that's that's the direction they have to go. Love the idea about placement jobs after graduation because ninety eight whatever percent of these kids aren't aren't going to aren't going to play professionally. Last last question, I promise. Are you concerned about the future of the ACC in this whatever takes shape? Well, I think John Swafford did a great job with the grant of rights. You know, Maryland left the ACC because they were going to have to cut five sports. And so their new president who came in from Iowa, from the Big Ten, said, well, why don't we join the Big Ten? They're paying out a lot of money, and we won't have to cut these sports. Well, that's not what college athletics should be about, number one. Number two is, you know, you have to look at the grant of rights that the ACC has, which ties everybody together through 2035. And so I don't think the ACC will be ripped apart. I think eight teams have to leave the ACC for the grant of rights to be null and void. And I just don't see that happening. Now, having said that, it'd be great if Notre Dame were to join the ACC, which would allow the ACC to go back to ESPN and negotiate a higher TV contract so they would be on par with or close to the SEC and the Big Ten. Um, But I just don't like how everything is revolving around money. And people are changing, you know, UCLA is $100 million in debt. So one of the reasons they leave the Pac-12 after being there for, I don't know, 85 to 100 years is uh, because the Big Ten is going to pay 70 to $100 million in TV uh, payouts. You know, that's, are we in college athletics? Are we in pro sports? And that's a decision that has to be made. Unfortunately, there's no one in charge of everything to help that dialogue move forward. And so, uh, but as it relates back to the ACC and your question, I think the grant of rights holds up. I think the ACC's, you know, in good shape. They do have to find new ways to create revenue. And um, unfortunately that's, that's a big challenge when you start to see the big 10 is announced today that they're going to be, you know, averaging about $70 million per team. And the ACC is going to be about 30, 35 million. Um, that 35 million difference is, you know, going to go to facilities. It's going to go to salaries. It's going to go to benefits um, for the student athletes that play in the Big Ten. So, you know, that's that's going to be a challenge for Jim Phillips and the ACC moving forward. Gary Stoken, I know you're a busy man. Really grateful uh, that you shared some of your time with us. Really, really appreciate it, sir. Well, Larry, I always appreciated you and. Uh, uh, appreciate you uh, having us and hopefully that um, you'll come to see us soon and look forward to hosting you. Absolutely. Best of luck as we kick off another football season. Looking forward to it, sir. All right. Thanks, Larry. Take care. If you're in the Eastern Midlands and PD area and you're in any way interested in buying and selling a home, commercial property, land, need to consider reaching out to Uptown Realty. They're based out of Sumter and run by a friend of mine, Patrick Enzer, big Clemson guy, used to cover the Tigers in a newspaper capacity, longtime supporter of Tiger Illustrated, longtime listener to the Dubcast. The home buying process should be an enjoyable experience, so let Patrick and his staff do all the heavy lifting. All you got to do is pick up the phone and call 803-774-0435 or go to UptownRealtySC.com. 
Another loyal supporter of the Dubcast is Blackacre Law Firm in Greenville, a subsidiary of Parm, Smith & Archenthold. Blackacre helps South Carolina residents achieve their dreams of home ownership by providing experienced professional representation for real estate closings. Attention to detail is crucial in real estate law. Blackacre is committed to making sure nothing gets by them preparing residential or commercial closings. Blackacre also offers estate planning services for their clients in the Greenville area. Find out more about Blackacre at 864-326-3507. When you're ready for a complete renovation in your home or business, open the door to more with Harris Home and Harris Commercial. Their local experienced team will totally transform any room space from beautiful floor coverings to construction to finished details. Harris handles every step of your renovation process, whether it's a kitchen or living room or an industrial or educational setting, like some of the positively stunning work they've done at Clemson University. Go to discoverharris.com and experience a total renovation transformation from Harris Home and Harris Commercial. All right, joined by Kelly Quinlan, longtime publisher of the Georgia Tech Rival site. How you doing, man? I'm good, Larry. How you doing? Doing well. So, uh, as I mentioned, we had uh, Gary Stoken on the front half of this podcast, so I figured we would go back to Atlanta uh, and uh, get a get a little checkup on Georgia Tech. You know, it was kind of controversial a couple of weeks ago, over here at least, when they announced the quote-unquote sellout of the, of, of the game at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. And um, I didn't really get any real clear answers. I guess, I guess I didn't really dig a whole lot. I just really didn't really bother me. But some fans were like, what the hell? Um, you know, the curtain and all that, 44,000 uh, capacity, where surely um, if you if – you, if you open the upper deck up, you'd have quite a bit more, uh, mainly Clemson fans. But Gary said, "Yeah, that's Georgia Tech's preference is to is to do their normal home game deal where they only give the visiting team four thousand tickets." How is that received among Georgia Tech folks? Do they mainly support it, or are they like, "Well, why don't we just play at our home stadium if it's going to be that way?" What's the, what's been the reception of that uh, that decision? I think it's been frustration because the whole idea of doing this is you're going to make money and try to make as much money as possible. Otherwise, why not? Pl- I mean, Bobby Dodds, it's 55 K, right? Um, why not? Why are you capping at 13 below that to play or whatever, 12, whatever it is. I forget the 42, whatever the number is. It's got 44. It's capped at for this game. It's like, you're losing that revenue. Um, so why are you giving up a home game? And, you know, one of the nicest stadiums in the country in terms of just the, the like venue with the, you know, way things look at night, especially night game there. Right. Um, why would you give that up for, you know, where you're capping your money? Why not let, is it going to make a big difference if you let, you know, 10,000 Clemson fans into the upper deck? Like um, they played Tennessee there for year in 2015. I mean, 20, not 20, 2016, 2017, mm-hmm. one of the years. And, um, you know, it was fully open for that. Uh, they played Carolina there last year and they had it in the same, what I call the soccer configuration with upper decks closed. Um, that sort of made sense as, you know, Carolina, it wasn't a basketball game, so we're not going to draw what they normally draw and tech had you know, obviously not been having a great season. Um, so yeah, to me it's just odd. You know, I'm curious kind of what it says about what the 
what things are going to look like the next week against, uh, or actually later that week when they play Western Carolina on Saturday and, it, and Bobby Dodd is going to be 25, 30,000 people. Um, if they, you know, yeah. Like, and for a night game too, um, if they're, you know, wanting to cap out this game, there's, just, there's basically, there's, um, a lot of people are sort of in this weird mode right now with, Jeff Collins and Georgia tech football and the athletic director, Todd Stansberry, where it's like, you got to show us that you can do something here. You know, like this is four year going into year four of mediocrity after you, you said you're going to change things and be back in the top 25 and talk all this stuff. Where's the proof in the pudding? And they were better last year. I mean, you guys saw that playing them. Um, they were a better team last year. They just, the offense was not very good and uh, Jeff Sims got hurt and it sort of wheels came off the bus and the defense was got awful. So, you know, people don't enjoy frustrating football. And I think that's where this comes from. Georgia tech people are uh, pragmatists. They're, um, you know, very results driven. Like, and when you have something that's hard to, to rationalize with the product on the field for the last three years, I think that you're seeing the results of that right now. People are like, you know what I could, especially on a Monday night, I can do something else. Like, am I going to really go downtown to Atlanta and suffer through bad traffic and pay to, you know, fortune to park my car and go in the bends and, you know, possibly watch a drubbing, you know, two of the three games have been pretty ugly. So, you know, I don't know. I I think it's going to be a really interesting season either way at Georgia Tech. And sticking on the, the the opener and sort of the, just the optics of it, the broader optics. I know that, I mean, this, this game was, was was agreed on you know long before now but sure. the fact that the optics of this are terrible for the ACC because opening weekend this time for these huge intersectional matchups in the same stadium two days earlier you have Georgia and Oregon going to be a packed house um, you're also going to have that weekend the ACC Florida State goes to LSU, but in New Orleans, so it's going to be you know the Superdome is going to be uh, bonkers. You got Notre Dame playing at Ohio State, and maybe one or two others. Anyway, but you're you're basically highlighting the ACC's problem when you have forty something thousand fans uh, capacity and a big curtain over the upper deck two two days after. Georgia and Oregon play, so it's just a really just a bad look all around for the ACC. Versus if they if they did it at Bobby Dodd Stadium, you know it'd be a it'd be a pretty cool atmosphere, and it wouldn't be nearly the because it a game at Mercedes Benz Stadium is supposed to be big, and this one's gonna just the look of it is gonna scream <laughs> small time, particularly it comes at a bad time for the ACC, which is which finds its its future in, in some, some real peril, I think. Yeah. I mean, they're trying to stay alive as the the third option right now and, and financially handicapped by the uh, TV deals they made to launch the ACC network basically. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it is weird. Uh, you know, the, the week of games is not super great. Um, really the game that would make the most sense if you're going to do this would be like, have a, a TV game would be on Monday night would be like West Virginia pick game 
I think that would be a little bit more interesting. I, like, I don't understand putting this game on Monday night. I don't like, especially after tech has been, you would think at some point, maybe they would have a discussion about, Hey, we need to look at something else here, you know, maybe move this game to a different, a different week in the season. Cause the deal with the, the, the bends and all that, they could do that anyways. Right. Like they played the Carolina game last year in the, in the middle of the season. Um, you know, why not move the game back? Why do you have these two teams playing each other when it's been ugly the last couple of times? And then, like you said, I mean, there's been a lot of cold night games at, at Bobby Dodd, especially between Clemson and Georgia Tech. There's some history there. So that's maybe a little more compelling. You can at least show some of the clips from those games. Um, and instead you're getting this sort of, it looks like a little bit of, you know, minor leagues, like, or, you know, the B team or whatever, like, uh, you know, it's to me, this like just doesn't make sense. They should have probably tried to find something else to fit into this. And yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, Florida State LSU, I'm pretty sure in the, the Superdome is going to be full, right? Like you're not, you're not going to have the curtain off upper deck there. Um, so why not try to find something a little more compelling, you know, spend some money to, to move it around? I don't know. It, it, to me, it's just, um, I don't like the Monday games anyways, when, especially in a neutral site. Like, I think it's weird to play them if it's, if it's an in-conference game anyways. And so I think if you're going to go with that, it needs to be something that moves the needle, not um, Georgia Tech Clemson that moved the needle, you know, five years ago or 20, 2016, 2014, maybe, you know, 2013, not now. If, if, if you could, sit down with Paul Johnson right now and 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 be assured that he's telling the truth the, the the total truth and you asked him does this make you happy uh, <laughs> what, what has happened the last three years a grand total of nine wins uh, I know obviously he certainly well I would guess still has you know an affinity for for the place he coached for so long but is his do you think if you were to guess and you, and you knew the guy really well, if you were to guess he's a he's competitive as hell, he thinks a lot of himself. Would he say, hell yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little, I'm a little pleased at, at what has happened since they ran me off. I mean, I think his view on it is they, yeah, I wouldn't say they ran him off. I think he got, he left because of the cheapness and mm. the lack of support more than anything. Um, and then they fixed all those things when they hired the next guy and gave him a lot more money to spend on staff and the things that, that Paul had wanted. I would say that Paul's, you know, I still talk to Paul Johnson from time to time. Um, he feels bad for the kids that are, you know, suffering through, especially the ones he recruited and had relationships with. Um, I think, I think he finds a great deal of irony in what's happened. Um, especially given all the talk that, that started things and how much Jeff Collins was selling out of the gate. But, um, you know, I think his be certain, I think he's really sort of, I think even with Collins kind of, they worked things out uh, a few years ago and now it's his be swore with the people that didn't provide him with, with what he needed to be successful and, and the leadership aspect of Georgia tech more so than even and Jeff Collins anymore. And so I think he finds he's quite amused by this um, and how, how it's kind of played out after he left that they kind of didn't listen to him. He gave them some advice on what to do um, 
and just in terms of you know who to look at and stuff because they were taken off guard by him retiring he had he had joked about it and talked about it for like three or four years which is why when he did it i didn't think he was serious um and, and so yeah he joked with me forever about it but like yeah i think he would be super amused by that and you know they're coming up on they've come up on some different anniversaries of things that his team teams have done and kind of come and gone quietly um and he's he's sort of of the opinion that I don't want to come down there right now with, until things change uh, in terms of sort of leadership and stuff. So it'll be interesting to see you know what he does. He's he's done a nice job of taking the high road with a lot of this, and and a lot of us too like haven't pushed him to to be you know talk to talk about this right. Like, but at the end of the day, he's the one up for the College Football Hall of Fame. You know, and it's not Jeff Collins or the AD Todd Stansberry or any of the other people down there. It's he was the one that had won the ACC championship and won a bunch of coastal division titles and did a lot of them with one hand, sort of half tied behind his back. So I, I imagine, you know, when he's sitting there drinking his bourbon, smoking his cigar, and he's <laughs> laughing to himself a little bit every time he watches one of these games on a Saturday night. The image in my head is just hilarious of that. What kind of bourbon does he like? Do you know? I'm not sure. I, you know, I think he's, uh, it's more, I don't know that he's a specific brand guy. I feel like he moves around. I've seen him drink, you know, the cheap stuff. And then uh, even the cigars, I don't know that he's been particularly picky about Western. Could probably tell you about more of the, the two of them used to enjoy them quite a bit. What did he suggest that they do? You said they didn't, they didn't uh, heed his suggestions. So, you know, from talking to Paul about it, he, he gave them, he gave Todd Stansberry, the AD, some guidance on like what he thought would make sense if, if they wanted to go away from his offense, right? Like he got the sense that they wanted to do that, which was pretty clear. They never interviewed guys like Jeff Munkin or really talked to Brian Bohannon, who was the head coach of Kennesaw State right now is real successful that both coached there under him. And instead, um, you know, the guy who made the most sense to me, uh, just in terms of system fit and maybe fitting in with what they were trying to do was actually sat at who's at Louisville now. Um, they, as far as I know, never approached them. Uh, they were, they just, Todd Stansberry's really seemed to be hell bent on hiring a guy that worked at Georgia tech and knew Georgia tech and a, a tech man. And, you know, Jeff um, had done two, two, two different tours of duty at tech and, um, certainly understood the ins and outs of it and was going to put together, you know, guys who were connected with the program in the past. And he would, the, 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 the background pieces, the non-football pieces all made a lot of sense because Collins connected with various different versions of the tech program over the last 20 or 30 years. And he was, had the type of personality where he could connect with people and rebuild some of those relationships. The problem was that he was, second year head coach at a team that was a turnkey situation at temple from Matt rule that had done a great job. And it was hard to tell the two of them were so similar, even in their coaching style, like how would he do building from ground up? And obviously it was going to be a, a tough gig too, coming in for, for Paul Johnson and trying to change the offense. Cause he had the wrong offensive lineman, you know, had some issues with, receivers quarterback was certainly a huge issue and then they go out and hire an offensive coordinator that was not well liked at temple um that their fans booed 
uh, at times. <laughs> and, and he had a terrible plan to be honest with you. Like, and I like him a lot as a person, but thought his plan was awful on how to make that transition. Why not be a RPO based kind of run heavy team? Well, that's what you're built for. You know, one of the former coaches at Georgia tech joked with me the first year Jeff was there. He was like watching one of the games. He goes, are they, do they think they're playing for draft picks? Like, <laughs> Uh, you know, there's no draft in, in college football. Like <laughs> oh, you don't get anything. And you know, it's sort of eye opening to me and, and you know, the offense made no sense um to me with the personnel you had and especially the offensive line you had. Like so yeah, what they're doing now makes a lot more sense. I think <laughs> what's ironic about all of this, Larry, is they actually have probably the staff you should have opened with right now which is all guys mostly have had P five experience. Um, they've been successful at different places and, you know, like Chip Long was a very successful offensive coordinator in Notre Dame. Uh, you know, Dal Alexander was his receivers coach there. Like Chris Winkie coached in the NFL and played, you know, at the highest level and, and, and achieved the highest level of success you can as a quarterback in, in college. Um, so, to me, like that's what you should have opened with. And instead he sort of brought most of his temple staff down and it just wasn't working. And most of those guys had never coached the P five level either. So, uh, it's one thing if you're, you know, Dabo and you're building your culture and you're promoting guys from within and there, you know, all, what all those guys are, right? Like, so he has confidence in that if he moves Jeff Scott up or Tony Elliott or whoever, like he's worked with them for a long time he, in, in it at the level of a P five program. I think it's a different thing when, you know, sort of a hodgepodge of guys. And that's where I think Georgia tech really got caught in a, a little bit of a mess too, because again, Georgia tech, the other piece of it is it has to be player development led. You have to be both really sound schematically and develop players. And that's what the success they had with O'Leary with Gailey and even with Paul Johnson was a lot of finding diamonds in the rough and, and developing guys. It wasn't them signing, Mr. Five Star, Mr. Four Star. The, the Georgia Tech fans, and I, obviously it's hard to, you know, you can't speak for all of them, but I'm just saying that it's a common sentiment given what you mentioned earlier about how how heavy he was into marketing the program uh, when he first got there the first couple of years and just being out there so much on social media. And now I don't think he's offered a peep for, he hasn't know. tweeted since uh, almost a year ago. <laughs> is that? Do people take that as and conclude, man, this guy is just a fraud, or is it more? Hey, I kind of respect that. He's not saying anything until he ha- actually has something to sell. It's sort of in between. I think some people are freaked out that he hasn't been on social media, and some people are like, "Good, he, he was quiet." Like, and the the people that took an immediate dislike to, to Paul were the old school fans that were that enjoyed the curmudgeonly qualities of Paul and, and guys like John Tenuta who's the defensive coordinator for Chan Gailey and some of the old school coaching um, kind of thing. And, and, you know, the first year I remember they did this thing in practice where it was like controlled chaos or something where they literally were running three huddles at the same time on two different fields. And I was just like, how do you, you don't have, this is in Alabama. You don't have 75, you know, former coaches on your support staff. Like, yeah. How are you even doing this? Like with any kind of, 
like making any kind of sense. And they started dial all of that back. And now it looks like a very traditional practice um, that I would see anywhere else in, in college football and that I've seen in the past. But I think, you know, Jeff was trying to reinvent the wheel a little bit and um, it backfired, uh, you know, in a big way. And, you know, the, it's hard. It's both difficult to fault him, but because I understand where he's coming from, he's trying to make Georgia Tech hip and cool. But I think that's just a difficult path unless you have somebody who's maybe a little more dynamic personality wise, like, you know, Deion Sanders, maybe you could pull it off. Um, but again, if you hire Deion Sanders, you've got to put, you've got to spend a lot of money on staff around him because he needs like really good coaches around him to, to execute what he's doing. Like, and I think that's where the, the biggest thing that I saw when I was looking at this, you know, even from day one is they spent too much money on, on coach Collins contract and gave him too much time and then didn't invest as much into the staff and have comparable salaries. If you look at where they are in the ACC, they're in the bottom, you know, three or four in terms of staff salaries and all those things. And if you're going to, take a chance on Jeff Collins. who's not a guy that's won national championships like Paul Johnson or won at Navy, which was really hard. I think you, you have to invest in that staff and, and put things in his contract where he's gambling on himself. That's the one thing I give Dabo Sweeney a lot of credit for because he gambled on himself early on to get the guys he wanted to hire. Right. Like he, he didn't max out the amount of money he could make. Like he was having them spend money on staff and, to me, that's where I think, you know, the other fatal mistake was made and all of this, you know, there were guys that turned down opportunities to come to Georgia tech early on just cause they couldn't afford them. Um, you know, in terms of maybe the OC hire out of the gate, um, and a couple other positions that we're looking at. So to me, I find it, um, it, it just seemed like there was, the plan was not great and how it was executed was, was even worse. And, now they've sort of dug themselves out of it, but it's been by just the sheer will of having to deal with, you know, dropping revenues and losing season ticket holders and, and the, you know, winning nine games in three, in three years. Like, I mean, it's historically bad for a program that's been pretty consistent since, you know, Bill Curry turned things around in his third or fourth year in, in the early 1980s, they haven't had this kind of, sustained uh failure since then some just eye-opening mind-boggling numbers associated with georgia tech um their roster has 17 transfers and 20 freshmen that's yep. almost half the half the roster's new and then it's, somebody did an article about the 2019 class of the 22 players six are still around and not a single one of those six is expected to start. That's not right. Okay. That's so it was funny. I, I heard about this and I, I got texted by one of my buddies who's a radio guy. He was like, and I was like, nope, that's, that's just not right. Um, uh, first of all, they're starting defensive tackles in the 2019 class. Uh, Daquan, Dallas, Dowsey. Yeah, they call him Dallas, but um, do say. Is is I think how you actually pronounce it. Daquan is going to start a D tackle for mm-hmm. them. Um, you know, if you look at the rest of that class, you know, you have 
two, you know, one, two, three. Klein Norris might start a wide receiver. He started last year for them a wide receiver a lot. Um, you know, Cannon Johnson and and um, Sylvain Yandigen and uh, what's the other one? Demetrius Knight are both in the two D. All three of them are in two D. Is it true? Yeah, that, that was a weird. Is the num- was, Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It was, it was a weird class because they had he. They were told to keep a lot of these kids committed, um, and then Jeff didn't have his staff hired before the December signing period. He had one assistant. I think he had to start choice, and so um, that was sort of a, a throwaway class. I mean, some of the guys in that class were stretches that they took late that you know didn't develop, or you know, there was a guy like Kendall Young that had to go to a JUCO because he had academic issues. Um, Jemias Griffin starting at Coastal Carolina. Mike Lockhart's at West Virginia now. Uh, Nazir Burnett, I think, is at Temple. Um, Marion Brown's at South Carolina. Like, the guys all ended up in different places because they were just sort of thrown together. Jordan Yates is at Sam Houston State. Chico Bennett's at Virginia. Wes Walker's going to start at Nickel for Tennessee. It wasn't like it was a bad class. It was just sort of the transfer portal losing and then uh, the weird fits that didn't make sense with the roster as well. So I think that's where, where that goes. I, I think, uh, you know, writing that story almost comes from a place of ignorance, understanding how, how things work now in the age of the December signing period with coaching changes, because you're sort of stuck with what you have. Um, whenever you take one of those jobs, unless you have a, a really cutthroat AD who's going to let you dump a bunch of kids, you know, basically what, three weeks before signing day, um, typically when the coaching changes happen, right? I think Jeff was hired the second week of December. So that would have given him 10, 15 days to put a class together for December. Um, so you, you, you know, it's to me, I think that's, I think that's really tough to look at. I think you have to look at the 2020 class and out of that, they have a lot of guys that are starting and they're too deep. And that was their first actual class as a staff that they put together. I guess with the, the numbers of the, the, the newness of, of, of this, uh, on, on this roster that I mentioned combined with the schedule, good grief. I mean, <laughs> It is schedule is terrible, and that's that's 100 on the AD because t- the two worst games, two most egregious games, are the two games that were punted that they probably could have got out of playing. Um, they're playing Ole Miss uh, week four. Ole Miss game that Ole Miss game was scheduled to take place almost 10 years ago. Um, they didn't want to play Paul Johnson, so they kept pushing it back. And then the UCF games from Hurricane, where they sent their players home in the middle of a hurricane instead of playing the game that was during their fake national championship season. And it was perhaps suspect how things were handled because their neighbors down the street, USF actually played that week. They played Illinois and beat them with one day of practice, but UCF couldn't host a game or come to Atlanta, flip the series, come to Atlanta and play because they had sent their players home randomly because, quite frankly, I think they didn't want to deal with the triple option because they were having this good season and thought that might trip them up, and it was a bad matchup for them. And so the AD, Todd Stansbury, was at UCF, and I think maybe they uh, you know, used their friendship there to, to push, push that game back when maybe other ADs would have just canceled the series 
been like, you know, screw it. We're, we're not playing, um, you know, or we're rescheduling this to a different time where we don't have old mess on the schedule, which push it back like five, six years instead of, uh, whatever it is. Well, I guess they push it back five years, yeah. push it back seven or eight years to where it's out of that. You can schedule around that, especially with as good as they were getting at that point. So yeah, it's a stupid schedule and you got Georgia and Clemson every year too. Can't, do you think, I mean, given how brutal that schedule is, do you, do you think he can save his job? He's got to go two and three in the first five. If he can win one of the tough games, Clemson at Central Florida, Gus is always good for, I don't know if you watched the UCF Louisville game, but that was the classic Gus Melzahn game last year where he snatched defeat from the hands of victory. Um, like he used to do at Auburn. Uh, they play them, you know, Ole Miss, Ole Miss is also sort of like Georgia tech transfer city. Uh, they have a really good team though. They have a lot of talent. Um, they, they procured a lot of talent. Uh, yeah, that's how I, I would, procure. I would, yeah. Yeah. Like, um, you know, like how you, if you collect wine, you can collect wine by purchasing it. Um, <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. Uh, you know, that, that, that's the rumors. Um, yeah. Ole Miss has a good team. Um, and then they play Pitt. um, you know, as the fifth game there at Pitt. So they play at UCF and at Pitt. And so if they can win two, you know, the problem for Jeff is going to be if they come out and play like they did against Notre, the last two games of last season, they lost a hundred to nothing in the last two games of the season. <laughs> Um, if you do that, you know, it's going to get really tenuous, like, um, going into the rest of the season. I think that, uh, looking at the schedule, you know, I think two and three is pretty doable. If they get to two and three, they got a chance because then things ease up because they play the coastal and the coastal's garbage. And then they play at Florida state later in the season. Mike Norvell might not be employed by that point, um, either. So, there's no telling kind of how that goes after that. Um, you know, they play after they get through that first five games, they play Duke, Virginia, and that Florida state and that Virginia tech. So those are all winnable games. And then you get Miami, you know, what is Miami in November? They're either good or they're going to give it up on the season. Um, historically. So you don't know there. And then you play at Carolina and at Georgia the last two weeks. Um, they're basically on the road for the whole back half of their schedule too, which is lovely uh, for those of us who cover the team. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a coach killer. Paul Johnson was complaining about the future schedules for a long time. Paul Johnson was not a fan of playing Clemson every year. Like he thought it was unfair compared to the rest of the league that, you know, why is Duke, you know, play Clemson every six years and you have to play them every year or Virginia or whoever, he was right. Right. You know, like if, if Miami was any good and Clemson had to play Miami every year, they would probably not be too excited about that. Um, so, you know, it's, it's the inequities of the, the scheduling gods. And, you know, if Clemson were matched up with, you know, if Duke were playing Clemson every year, I'm pretty sure, you know, David Cutcliffe would have complained forever about that too. But, um, you know, the way I look at it is, Last year, everyone talked about how hard the schedule was, and then Clemson wasn't Clemson, right? And and North Carolina certainly was not what anyone expected. So at that point, um, I think that, 
you just have to kind of let it play out. And if he, you know, he's got to live and die by, right. They should have won six games last year based on the way they played on the field. They just were not good enough. Like they didn't execute. They missed a handful of plays in a bunch of different games, like the Clemson game or the NIU game to open the season or Boston college or Miami, it's just a play here and a play there and they win those games and he's, you know, goes to a bowl game last year and then people look at the schedule this year and they go, yeah, you know, it's a really crap schedule for him this year. We'll give him a little bit of a break on that. If he gets to four or five wins, we'll be happy. Now it's like, look, you've got to win six games, man. If you want to keep your job, the AD's job's probably on the line, depending on who you ask uh, these days. And they might be making a clean sweep of, the whole brain trust of Georgia Tech football by the time December rolls around. Yeah, it's kind of crazy, all this gloom and doom and uh, we've been talking about and hey, they came within six points of Clemson and Death Valley last year. So anyway, who, who knows? A couple inches, have. really. Yeah, a couple mean, inches. Absolutely. It was literally like inches you know, <laughs> from scoring. Well, Kelly Quinlan, I know you're busy. I really appreciate you sharing your time for the moment and uh, that should be an interesting season. Um, over there yeah i mean we haven't even talked about clemson like clemson's they've got a thousand questions too going into the season so it's one of those things i think really everyone in the acc right now there's you know with what happened with hartman and wake Forest, like who do you who who do you actually know for sure is is real right now i I think the answer is probably no one because miami's certainly not given us any evidence to think they are um historically you know maybe it changes with their new coach but everyone in the league is pretty it could go any number of different ways right like um so i think that's going to be the one sort of interesting thing about this and the game in atlanta could go any number of different ways too indeed all right sir have a great have a great uh, rest of the preseason it's it's just about over so thank god looking forward to it <laughs> Okay, thanks to Kelly Quinlan for sharing his time with us. Also to Gary Stoken. Really good stuff on both counts. Thanks to our very loyal sponsors for helping make this happen. Most of all, thanks to every one of you for hitting that play button. Cheers. Cheers.